Good morning again. Now, be, before we open up another book of the Bible and work our way through it until at least the beginning of the new year, we're going to turn again throughout this fall and early winter to the Bible's book of prayers. Now, two years ago, when we did this, we left off at Psalm 16. So today, please open up to Psalm 17. A prayer of David. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the prayer book, which was not in vain, but is instructive to all your people, your new covenant people during the old covenant period and your new covenant people now. Fill us with gospel grace boldness to pray as David prayed to the glory of your name. Amen. Now, we'll be reading every word of this Psalm 17 as we work our way through it. But just in an introduction to it, what we have before us here is a, a prayer of David. And, and the theme of this begs us Christians, pray, petition, ask of your God, plead. With him. Now, the whole psalm is a prayer, but its structure, there's, there's three sections of it consisting of three petitions of David. And these three sections are the three points of this sermon. And those three points are these. In verses 1 to 5, the point is, Pray, pray knowing that you are in the right. Secondly, verses 6 to 12, pray when circumstances look bleak and anxiety rises up within you. Pray. Thirdly is verses 13 to 15. Pray in light of your glorious, unending future in Christ. So first, verses 1 to 5. Let's read it. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Yahweh. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. 
I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man by the word of your lips. I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Summed up, here's David's prayer. Lord, in this case, I'm in the right. I'm with you. Therefore, hear my request. Notice in verse 1, he begs Yahweh to hear him. Actually, what he's saying is pay close, careful attention to my desire to be vindicated. Look at verse 2. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold or see the right. That's his petition. And his confidence is that God sees everything. He sees who is in the right and who's in the wrong. And then he makes his case before the Lord saying, look, I've done a self-examination of my heart and my actions in this case. See it in verse 3? You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You've tested me. And you'll find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. Literally, Lord, you, you have scrutinized me. You worked me over in the middle of the nights as I lay in bed. You refined me and you found no secret wrongs in me. I've not sinned with my words. See it? Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. And not only... Is he saying he's blameless here in his speech, but also in his public life as king, in his actions, verses 4 and 5. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. David is bold. My walk, O Yahweh, is in line with your path. And this walk, he says, it's owing to you, to your word. I've taken your, your, your scripture, your commands, your ways, and they've penetrated my heart, and they have directed my steps. That's what he says. With regard to the works of man, here it is, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. Do you ever have 
situations, times in your life where you pray like that? Should we ever pray like that? Is David being sinfully arrogant in praising himself in prayer? I can, I can just hear in the background of our day uh, a young 32-year-old man who has just come into the glories of Reformed theology saying, No, David, there are none righteous. No, not one. And that would be a wrong response. Because look, all the writers of the Psalms are very aware of their sin natures. And they're very aware on this other level that he's not talking about here, that nobody could stand perfectly righteous under God's holy scrutiny. I mean, for instance, Psalm 133 is clear. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Or Psalm 143 too. Enter not into judgment with your servant because no one living is righteous before you. See, that sin which is in David and all of us, and he's very aware of, because we know all of David's life. That sin, that messed upness, it's assumed in the Psalms. And it's assumed in David's prayer here. But as an enlightened, born-again, Holy Spirit-filled person, David and we are not claiming sinlessness. What he's claiming is steadfastness. His claim is not about perfection. It's about his life. It's about his direction. It's about his constancy and consistency. It's about the pathway that he's on, the direction that his life is moving in with God, with Yahweh, toward Yahweh. That's his point. Verse 5, my steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. David prays, Lord, Here's my walk that you are working in me. I stand with you. I walk with you. The underlying assumption for David and for us is the gospel of grace that causes us to turn to him habitually. Are you living in unrepentant sin right now? I mean, is that your hypocritical walk? Then you should not pray this prayer. Not yet. 
Do you pursue the word of the Lord's lips, the scriptures, and walk, allowing him to scrutinize you in the night, and to test you and to refine you? Then be bold and make your plea. Lord, I'm right. You scrutinized my heart here. The enemy here is wrong. Hear me. That's to Christians. Just l- listen to how the psalmist says this in Psalm 66, verse 16 to 19. Come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. As the Apostle Paul tells all of us in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. In other words, get rid of cherishing iniquity or the Lord will not hear you. Or the way the New Testament says it, the way the Apostle Peter tells the church, your, ha- your prayers, they will be hindered if you cherish living unrepentantly in a wrong way. Here's our lives. But now, say that's true for the last three days or four months. Well, four years. You turn to 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, with that done, you now take Psalm 17 to heart. Lord, I'm in the right. The enemy is wrong. Here, a just cause. Attend my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips of deceit. Pray. Knowing, in this case, with an enemy, you're in the right. Secondly, Psalm 73 instructs us to pray when circumstances look bleak. When, I don't care, small or big, personal or macro, when anxiety rises, pray. Let's read it, verses 6 to 12. I call upon you 
for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion, eager to tear. Is a young lion lurking in ambush. Notice, he first bases his petition on the truth of who Yahweh is. He's the God who pays attention. I call upon you for or because you will answer me, O oh God. Everything depends on this. I mean, if God does not hear and He does not answer prayer, then why would we waste our time and our energy? Then He takes what he knows about God from the scripture that preceded David, the law, what he knows about how God has acted in history. And he's praying essentially, that's who you are. That's what you did. Do that for me. Be that for me. What I mean is, when he says in verse 7, wondrously show your steadfast love, what he is saying is, I'm yours. I'm in covenant with you. I belong to you. Make a distinction between me and the enemy. Make your acts of grace, loving kindness, chesed, clear, obvious in this situation. And why, why do I say that's at the core of what he's saying? Okay. Because that word show in verse 7 is the same Hebrew word used in Exodus during the three plagues of the flies, in the cattle, and the killing of the firstborn. And that word means to make a distinction. Or, or you can, depending on the flow of, the, of a clause, to set apart. For instance, in Exodus 8, verse 22. But on that day, I, Yahweh, will set apart the land of Goshen. Same word where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. 
Or in Exodus 9, verse 4, And Yahweh will, here it is, make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the same thing with the death angel passing over God's covenant people. He makes a distinction. And so verse 7, make your acts of grace, loving kindness, distinct for me. Make it clear, make it obvious, like you did in the Exodus. In this particular situation, I, David, am praying about. All new covenant people, all Christians, should pray something like that in particular times. Oh, God of the Exodus, make clear in my situation as you did back then that I'm distinct from your enemies, that I'm the object of your special care. Then the metaphor of verse 8 confirms this, is what he's saying. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Protect me as the apple, didn't use the word apple, it's pupil. The pupil, we all have the way we say this in different cultures. It's, it's the same thing that we mean by apple, the eye. Your pupil, where's your pupil? It is, it's right on David. He's, he knows God is massively alert to him. In the center So when David prays this, he's probably referring again to an historical account. Under Moses in the wilderness where Yahweh took special care of his people in the wilderness. From Deuteronomy 32.10. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness he, Yahweh, encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And so David, hundreds of years later, prays, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. That's his plea. Then in verses 10 to 12, what he does is he proceeds to lay out his case against the enemy. The enemy that he's asking protection in, in, in other words, in, in what he's saying is, this is who they are. He's saying this, Lord, my request is urgent. David, he describes his enemies as arrogant, as godless, 
is callous. If David were king in Israel today, he would pray this prayer against Hamas and the Iranian government. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. Then he sets out their intentions in verse 11. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. And Lord, let me paint a picture of my enemies. Verse 12. He's like a lion eager to tear. As a young lion lurking in ambush. The immediate context of David's prayer looks bleak. He's saying, my anxiety is getting out of control, which leads into his next plea. Arise, O Yahweh! Confront him! Subdue him! Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. This kind of prayer is very relevant to each of our lives. Now, you have an enemy, demonic powers in the satanic realm, and your own sinful nature in flesh. It's relevant, and it's relevant to the lives of local churches. And it's relevant to Christians in various circumstances around the world today. For example, think about how many of our brothers and sisters in Jesus in Nigeria are praying David's prayer as the enemy, Boko Haram, has and is continuing to slaughter Christians because they're Christians throughout West African countries. Boko Haram, Lord, is like a lion eager to tear. Is a young lion lurking in ambush. It's relevant. Think of how some Christians who in America right now are political prisoners, incarcerated immorally and unjustly by the false religion of leftism, would be communism. Pray, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. Or as many of us in this country watch the enemy of government schools pollute 
the minds and the souls of young people with anti-Christian doctrines, teaching them to be militant against the God of the Bible and His people. God says He made them male and female. The schools teach the children. No, He didn't. A man who thinks he's a woman is a woman. God says that the male and the female come together and become one flesh in the holy covenant of marriage as husband and wife. The enemy and her teachers indoctrinate. No. Uh-uh. A man can marry a man. Husband can have a husband. Homosexuality is not an abomination as the Bible teaches. It's beautiful. The scriptures say, A man shall not wear women's clothing. The enemy says to children, Come and see men dressed in drag. It's beautiful. Here a just cause. Oh God. You see your right from wrong. Attend to our cry. As David prayed for refuge against the enemies of Israel, many American Christians today pray against the godless secular religion that is slowly moving in its takeover of our country's institutions and systems, praying, knowing that that same religious philosophy murdered over a hundred million individual human beings in a period of 60 years during the 20th century. Here, a just cause, O oh, Yahweh. Attend my cry. Arise, O oh, Lord Jesus. Confront him. Subdue him. So pray when circumstances look bleak. Finally, pray in light of your glorious, unending future in Christ. Verses 13 to 15. Let's read it. His plea. Arise, O Yahweh. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Yahweh. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. And they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake... 
I shall be satisfied with your likeness. He begins it. Lord, get up and smash him. Now there, David is probably historically referring to the leader of these enemies. In verse 13, he writes the word him twice in its singular. And then the word wicked is also singular. But then in verse 14, his enemies clearly include many others as he speaks of Men, plural, the men of this world. Now, the structure here is that David, he speaks to the Lord, painting a picture of his adversaries in verse 14. Then he contrasts himself with them in verse 15. Little bit of a problem to deal with first. The second half of verse 14 is difficult to translate. It can go either way. And what I mean is this. You can see this in the way that the scholars of the NIV decided to translate the second half of verse 14. They do it this way. You still the hunger of those you cherish, Lord. Their sons have plenty, and they store up wealth for the children. So the NIV takes these words to refer to God's people, like David himself. But the King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the ESV take these words to refer to the enemy, not to God's people, as they translate it, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. I think that's the way it should be taken without getting into all the technicality of it in the flow because he's contrasting himself though, right, with the next verse with them. So in other words, paraphrased, what is David praying? It's, Here's my paraphrase, Satan, in other words, in different words to try to bring out the meaning here. Lord, deliver me from the men of this age whose portion is the stuff of this life. You, you do, you fill your, their bellies with treasures. They're satisfied with having sons, literally, and they get to leave their riches to their children. That's their lot in life, Lord. These are my enemies. Ever felt that? He said, look how blessed they seem to be. Propertied. Portfolios. What we refer to in Christianity as God's common grace. The Lord causes it to rain, which is a good thing when you're a farmer, to rain on the just and the unjust. Lord, 
whole plot. The murderer of two to three million individual human beings just a few decades ago got to live out his life to old age and die in his sleep. And what David is going to help us here now with that kind of stuff in this world is essentially don't forget Jesus' words from his story of the rich man in Lazarus. When Jesus said, concluding that story in Luke 16, verse 25, but Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. Pol Pot is not sleeping now. And so David, he contrasts himself with the wicked in verse 15. And he does this by using in the Hebrew the emphatic I. I mean, you don't need to throw this other pronoun in there about I. And he does, and it's for emphasis. So literally, it should be translated like this. David says, on the other hand, here we go. I, in righteousness, I will see your face. His point in the contrast is, they're good, the enemy's good is only in this life. But I, I center my life on seeing your face when I awake from death. It's his point. We will all go to the place of the dead. Sheol in Hebrew. But David's saying, I, will awake and see you, your form. Many of the Psalms, they come from worshipers who are really going through hard, difficult, scary times, facing godless enemies who are very happy to usher them in to the place of the dead sooner than later. But they anticipated being with Yahweh beyond the grave. Let me give you a taste, Psalm 73, verse 23 to 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me in this life with your counsel. And afterward, 
you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and He is my portion. Not just here, but forever, unendingly. So David prays, I, in righteousness, I, will see your face. I will be satisfied when I awake from death seeing you. And again, I'm convinced David, he knows the words of Numbers chapter 12 verses 6 to 8. The Lord spoke to make it clear to the people of Israel challenging His servant, Moses. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of Yahweh. That's David's expectation in the afterlife that drives his prayers down here. And in the context, why is that important for David and for us? Because that reality and praying that way conquers envy. When he sees the ungodly prosper and get rich, but they're evil, they're coming against the Lord. Like most of the elite in our own country. In verse 14, David said that his adversaries were satisfied with having children and leaving all their stuff to them, making a name for themselves. But David knows that real satisfaction is seeing the face, the form of God, as Moses did. And that is where all Jesus' people rest their ultimate hope. I'm going to close quoting three sentences from Ian Murray's biography of Jonathan Edwards. I recommend it. It is a, uh, it'll be, it's hard not to meditate and pray reading through Murray's 
auto, I mean, auto, uh, biography of Jonathan Edwards, greatest theologian, philosopher America's ever produced in the 1700s. If you don't know the name David Brainerd, he died in Jonathan Edwards' house at age 29 after being a missionary way out west, western Pennsylvania and all those areas, to the Indians, this country, for years struggling with tuberculosis. It got bad. He came and showed up at Sarah in Jonathan's house and over that next year slowly died. But one of their many children, her name was Jerusha, 17 years old, was like the hospice caretaker of David Brainerd for months and months and months on end. I pick up with the three lines. Before the winter, which began with the death of Brainerd, Jerusha Edwards herself fell ill. After only five days, she died on February 15th, 1748. Her dad, Jonathan Edwards, wrote, she was esteemed the flower of the family. Her father also wrote to a friend saying, David Brainerd looked on her not only as a saint, but as an eminent saint. Last line. Her grave was to lie side by side with Brainerd's, bearing the text chosen by her parents. Psalm 17. Verse 15, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. So shall all who have fled for refuge under the comforting wings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the indescribable gift of your son, our conqueror, no one less than the great son of David himself. Oh, be glorified in us and in our prayers and teach us all the more how to pray boldly to the glory of your holy name. Amen.